Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners, and we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. So welcome back to Ivy League Murders. I'm Sarah. And I'm Laura. And we want to thank everyone for tuning in again. We've entitled this episode, New Faux Riche and the Clever Con of Clark Rockefeller. Rockefeller. The name evokes wealth, success, and American royalty. In the drawn-out aristocratic tones of old Yankee money, Clark Rockefeller would say, yes, of course, when I was at Yale. Like most things in Clark's life, it was complete fabrication. This is the story of a masterful long con and the events that led to Clark's capture and trial. Sarah, when Sandra Boss met Clark Rockefeller, she thought she had met her Prince Charming. Little did Sandra know that Clark Rockefeller was born Karl Gerhardt's writer in Bremen, Germany on February 21st, 1961. He was not a Rockefeller at all. Bremen is a charming town near Munich, but way too sleepy for the restless young Gerhardt's writer. At 17, Carl, as we'll call him, met an American couple, Jean and Elmer Kellen, who were visiting the area to find Hitler's famous Kelstein House, or Eagle's Nest. Carl was hitchhiking and invited them back to his house. He peppered them with questions about America. The couple were surprised when Carl showed up at their house a few months later. Thus began Carl's journey, changing his identity and snowing anyone he came in contact with. Using different aliases, Carl infiltrated people's lives and used them for furthering himself. Lodging, money, you name it. His perfect icon of old money wealth was Thurston Howell III, the rich tycoon on Gilligan's Island, the 70s sitcom, which Carl watched obsessively. Sarah, I actually think this is pretty funny. It's hilarious. That's who he picked, but if you think about it, who else was on TV at that time? who is kind of an Ivy League old money icon. Exactly. Right? Exactly. It's true. Yeah. Thurston Howell III, you know, kind yeah, of Yeah, that's you the know. affect he took. <laughs> Although Thurston was a Harvard man. Oh, he was. Carl Gerhardt's writer became Christopher Mountbatten Chichester. Mountbatten and Chichester smacked of British nobility. And to us unsuspecting Americans, why would this guy make this up? This was only one of the permutations that Carl went through in changing his identity. Well, he aimed high. He did aim high. I mean, the British royal family, Sarah. And there was always a whiff of the truth, and Carl, bless him, really did his research. And guess what? It worked. The final upgrade for Carl was Clark Rockefeller, complete with outfits from J Press, a phony art collection, and a membership at the exclusive Algonquin Club. Clark studied and adopted the intonation of the New England blue blood. Yes, quite so. Clark Rockefeller's outrageousness was passed off in the upper circles in Boston and New York as an eccentric, an aristocrat, and just some color at fancy parties. Clark met the smart and pretty Sandra Boss at a clue party and swept her off her feet. They married in 1995. Boy, had she gotten lucky landing herself a Rockefeller. (laughs) A man so effete, he was simply above money. Behind closed doors, Clark was a different person controlling, irascible. Boss was getting cold feet when she got pregnant. 
Ray Sturrow Mills Rockefeller, or Snooks, was born in 2001. Given Sandra's schedule, she was working all the time. Clark brought Snooks up, but Sandra finally filed for divorce in 2007. As part of the divorce, Sandra did a background check on Clark to try to find out if he had any hidden assets. I mean, being a Rockefeller, you know, he must have had a pile of money somewhere. Well, and she obviously must have been giving clues up to this point. He did tell her some bizarre stories and she hadn't seen any money up till this point. Exactly, exactly. So she initiated this background search to initially try to find hidden assets, which as a PI, I've, I've done as well. So when the PI did the background search, he could not find any identity for Clark Rockefeller prior to him meeting Sandra Boss. In other words, he said this all ends at this certain point. It was very suspicious. That's when they start to dig and find out that Clark Rockefeller was a fictitious person. (laughs) Kind of side note here, and and just a a really kind of crazy factoid is when he was working in finance in Greenwich, they had done a search on his social security number. And I guess the PI wound up searching that social security number later. And it was David Berkowitz. The son of Sam. The son of Sam's social security number. And you just kind of wonder if that was kind of like a nod or or homage. Yeah. It's just another bizarre, another bizarre little twist in the tale. We have the absolute pleasure of Uh, being able to talk to Brad Bailey. He's an attorney, and he represented Rockefeller on a subsequent murder trial. Brad Bailey is a former prosecutor and county sheriff with decades of legal work under his belt. He's also an Ivy Leaguer who graduated magna cum laude from Harvard, and he practices law locally for us in Boston at the Brad Bailey Law Firm. And it's our honor to have Brad Bailey here with us today to discuss this fascinating case. Welcome, Brad. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I am a cum laude, not a magna, but I sort of like the sound of magna. Okay. Oh, I'm a cum laude too. Yeah, I'm not a magna either. Okay. So. Yeah, my thesis did me in. I was there on the grades, but they didn't really like my thesis. Well, I went to University of Miami, so I'm a Ben de Soleil. (laughs) So, Brad, we're very, very honored to have you on the show. And um, yes, we really, really are. And we should first explain to our listeners who you are and what your relationship is to Clark Rockefeller, Rockefeller, because our listeners don't know. So maybe we could start there. Sure. And um, his true name is Christian Carl Gerhardt Strider. Clark Rockefeller was a number of aliases that he adopted along the way as he reinvented a persona in the United States of America, having come here from a small town in Bavaria in Germany. I, to this day, call him Clark. He liked being called Clark. That's how I know him, and that's how I referred to him. But I was one of his lead defense attorneys at the California murder trial for the death of John Sohus was somebody that went missing in 1985 and whose remains were recovered in 1994. Ultimately, Clark went to trial in a courtroom in Los Angeles for the murder of John Sohus. How did you get introduced to the case or to Clark? As a partner at a very small criminal defense firm in Boston, Mr. Rockefeller retained the firm when he was facing charges for the kidnapping of his daughter, Snooks. One of the partners at the firm asked me to do the kidnapping case with him. I thought, well, you know, I'm too busy. Why would I be interested in this case? It's just another kidnapping case. I was aware that there was an ongoing murder investigation in California. I said, by contrast, if that ever breaks, I'd be very interested in doing that. But I just wasn't really interested in the kidnapping case. International headlines later, a media circus in the courtroom in Suffolk County and all sorts of things. I did come to regret that decision. I was pleased that I had, from the start, said I wanted to be involved with the murder case if it ever resulted in charges. He really does fascinate me because I think that, you know, you really have to be pretty intelligent to perpetrate the type of con that he was able to perpetrate. So I'm wondering what your impressions were of him when you first interacted. I know you're limited in what you can say, but with your limitations, what could you say about your impressions of him? When I first met him, it was in a jail cell in the Nashua Street Jail here in Boston. 
there had been a lot of publicity on his arrest. He had been a fugitive and he had been picked up in, in, in Maryland as sort of all these names started spilling out. And there had been a lot of photos of him. And he had an attorney who had actually gone on national television and allowed Clark to speak on national television after his arrest, which was unusual and certainly something that I would not have counseled my client to do. So there were all these impressions already out there in, in uh, the print media and the electronic media. And so the first impression is, this really is the guy. <laughs> he looks like the guy. He's affecting the guy in terms of how he's presenting himself. Sure. He still believes that he is Clark Rockefeller. And that was really profound to me. It was also clear that he was taking in everything right within the little sphere that I was in. And uh, I think there were two other lawyers with me at the time. He was taking stock of all of us. He had a very clipped accent, which was very interested. There was a sense that he really thought or was trying to project who he had pretended to be. So you believe he was convinced of his own con in some ways? I think he was very comfortable with his own con in terms of the persona that he had created. And that was a piece of my whole approach to the defense at trial in Los Angeles, which I'll get into in a little bit later in your questioning. And you think having him, and I think we may insert some of that footage, you think that was obviously a bad idea to have him talk to the press after his arrest? It is not something that I, who have been a state and federal prosecutor and a long, long time criminal defense attorney and who've been doing this for almost 40 years, would not have counseled him to do. Basically, because if he does have any potential Fifth Amendment privileges, one could argue by opening up and talking about things, he's waiving them in terms of future proceedings. But more importantly than that, you don't want your client pre-trial making statements that are going to be able to be used to potentially impeach him in terms of inconsistencies, in terms of locking him into a particular scenario before you even know what the prosecution's case is going to be. And it's just never advisable to do that and something that I would never have counseled or allowed any client to do under those circumstances or any circumstances. So, Brad, can we back up a little bit? Can you tell us a little bit about Clark's life prior to becoming Clark. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, we know he grew up in Germany. We know that he came to the States at the age of 17. And Clark Rockefeller was not the only persona that he kind of took on. Uh, no, it, uh, it wasn't. So he ultimately came to a small town in Connecticut. Um, I'm saying small town and, and thinking God to my horror. Maybe it was Greenwich, which is not exactly a small town, but it was a town. I don't think it was Greenwich. No, it, it was Berlin, Connecticut, Berlin, if, Connecticut. If, if I remember. Thank you. Yeah. The trial was 2013 and the prep was long ago. And he went to high school there. His fellow students found him very interesting. And those that testified or those that were interviewed said that it seemed like he was always trying out voices on them, mm. and not necessarily impersonations, but just different types of voices, different types of accents, and also sort of changing his personality around them. It was striking enough for the folks who had known him at 16, 17, maybe 18 to have remembered that some 25 years later or well beyond that. So he was sort of practicing his personas, or trying them out on different people at this point. Yes, he, he was. And, and there was a, a family that he stayed with that, as I recall, the, the reviews were sort of mixed. There was one family member who was rather fond of him and liked him, and, and the others really didn't. They described a level of arrogance that they didn't like, sort of a, a feeling of what they sensed to be entitlement that they didn't like, and then this constant practice of maybe trying to be somebody else. That was there from the start. And he was sitting around watching, is this when he started to like sit around watching Gilligan's Island all the time? There was testimony about that. Watching um, and emulating... Thurston Howard the Third, right? <laughs> that that was um, a piece of somebody's recollection. Absolutely. 
And then he seems to kind of try out these new personas and then kind of up at a level, you know, with how far he'll go. And, and he goes pretty far. He does go far. He went so far as to have business cards printed up, which listed him as a baronet. And he would yeah. be sophisticated enough to have whatever he did nuanced enough so that it couldn't really be sort of scrutinized and it might just sort of throw people off. So for instance, one of the first names that he adopted when he was out in California was Christopher spelled Chichester. But he insisted over and over again to anybody who spoke to him and used his name that it was pronounced Chichester. So that was the type of thing that the little spin that he would put on to try to establish, in his opinion, authenticity. As a Chichester, that's where he claimed baronetcy and sort of to be related to royalty in Great Britain. And as you may recall, Francis Chichester was, you know, the famous solo navigator, circumnavigator of the gypsy moth and, and all of that, and who was of British royalty. And I think there was sort of a vague but not acknowledged inference that, yeah, I'm of that family, but the better part of that family, no, it's Chichester, not Chichester. So that was sort of his MO. And uh, it took off from there. It's really wild to think about him as a young man, pretty good looking guy. I feel like if he had auditioned, if he had turned this into an acting career, he probably could have done very, very well because what he did actually took some intelligence and research and a lot sensitivity and sort of knowing how to kind of manipulate people. It's almost like the dark side of acting in some It's a profound uh, insight. He's a very bright guy. He was clearly a voracious reader. While he was incarcerated, he was working on a biography of some obscure sort of second-tier diplomat under uh, Franklin Roosevelt and had written pages and pages on that. And one does wonder that given all of the people he fooled, I mean, he actually was working for a brokerage house yes. without any, any licensing or anything uh, and was engaged with the New York Stock Exchange and, and for a while fooled everybody there and, and um, you know, was interacting with the Nikkei Index. And you just wonder that if he could have, in fact, put what he had and what he could do and all of his acuity and capacity into something other than what ultimately happened here we might all have benefited from it. Oh, absolutely. And he seems to, I think, have really taken advantage of our fascination or Americans' fascination with royalty, with wealth, but, you know, especially with royalty, you know, he used the Mountbatten name, which is another name associated with royalty. And he kind of, people were just so in awe of that here. And he really kind of took advantage of that. He he sure did. was sort of the typical American success story of reinventing yourself. And I often uh, draw parallels to The Great Gatsby by uh, Fitzgerald or uh, Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis. I think that that was really what was going on here. And I think that, as I maintained from the start, all of the steps that he was taking post-1985, when this murder for which he now stands convicted, occurred, it was my position that what he was doing wasn't covering up a murder. It was protecting a con Mm. and protecting the con that he had developed through his persona, that suddenly he was this Clark Rockefeller, a scion of the Rockefeller family who uh, had a table at the Algonquin Club, a beautiful home in Cornish, New Hampshire. And a collection of art. Very good fabricated Art, but yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Can we discuss that? Yeah, let's let's talk about the art a little bit because it is very interesting. We actually reached out to Anthony Amore prior to this call, just to who is he is the security director at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, and we asked him about. In the back of our minds, we were researching this and thinking, how is Clark fooling museum administrators? It's difficult to pass off fake art. Uh, Rothko is real, and he professed to have real Rothkos. Yeah, to people in the know. I mean, he was passing this off to people who knew art and who were collectors. The paint has to be of a certain age. 
you can't use new paint. You can't stick your thumb into it and have it an indent. You have to know what you're doing. It's pretty fascinating. There's some effort put into that. What we were talking about this morning was that the art that he chose was Motherwell, Mondrian, Rothko. These are pieces that are easier to replicate, put it to you that way, than, let's say, a Rembrandt. I think that his intelligence and savvy is pretty apparent here. I mean, it's pretty difficult to do these things. He snowed some really impressive people. I mean, I I think... (laughs) Well, he snowed his wife, who is very, very smart woman. She was Harvard and Stanford educated. She was a McKinsey partner, and he did. She testified at trial that she started to suspect things, and, and I think eventually you do. And one of the pieces of evidence was that he would constantly tell her how much he hated Connecticut. And if they were driving, he wanted to avoid Connecticut, which is extremely difficult to do if you're coming down from New England. And she said that they would have to go right through Connecticut, and he often would seem to be ducking low in the car. And my counter to that is, yeah, is because Connecticut is where you can start linking everything together all the way back to California, all the way back to Berlin, Connecticut, all the way back to Bavaria. Because there are definitive links in the chain of his personality changes over to Clark Rockefeller, which began in Connecticut, that he didn't want Sandra to be aware of, because that is what would ultimately reveal the con that he had pulled off for so long and so successfully. Now, she had a private investigator looking into him, and her family started to have suspicion, but it was really the fact that he knew there were too many unbroken links that would ultimately lead back to who he truly was, and most of them could be found in Connecticut. How did he explain the lack of income? I mean, I would think, you know, especially to Sandra, I mean, where did he get the money for all of From her. You know, in terms of a question like, how did he explain? Certainly whatever he might have. Right, you wouldn't know. To me, I, I can't say. But I think that the impression given by those who were questioned about it was that he sort of acted as he felt the wealthy really do. You know, there's always the rumor that the Kennedys never carry money on them. And right, um, right, right. Joe DiMaggio was America's guest or something like that. And he did sort of affect that. I mean, there was some preposterous situation where he claimed to have the keys to the Rockefeller Center. <laughs> we were, we were we going to bring that up. Because, we were joking around I, about I, that. And too. I used to live in New York. So I'm, I'm like, what did he have keys to? Like, where in Rockefeller Center do you need, like... <laughs> To the front door, like what? (laughs) To the skating rink? If that's not cluing you into something, you just don't want to be clued into what's going on and just run with it, basically. Exactly. Like she was obviously in some type of love cloud if she didn't see it at that point, because. But I think there's also a an acceptance of a certain eccentricity in those circles as well, and I think. Probably some people thought, oh, he's just a character or maybe 60% of what he's saying makes sense. And the other 40, he's entertaining. He's color at the parties. Again, he was so good. And I remember a conversation with him, and this actually repeated itself a number of times, where we are talking and what he's saying is sounding more and more familiar. And... I'm sort of getting drawn in and I'm saying, wait a second, there's sort of a deja vu here. And then I realized he's talking about people that I'm familiar with, some quite familiar with, friends, places I'm aware of. He's talking about Beacon Hill in Boston. He's zeroing in on me to such a degree that I say to myself, now, holy moly, he's adopting me. Wow. It's wow. almost sort of like a cipher situation. Wow. He's parroting back to me what he knows I know and I'm familiar with to create a comfort zone and to put us in the exact same place at that moment 
So I'm accepting of him. That is fascinating. That is I have to say. And you could see how all of these people were taken in. And who in the United States doesn't love royalty? So, of course, that's going to resonate when he was a fifth baronet. Then when he's uh, auditing film classes at USC and helping students, he's suddenly Christopher Crowe and lets out sort of casually that, well, he's Cameron Crowe's brother. And he would make sure when he was in Connecticut as Chris Crowe to have Cameron Crowe posters for movies that his ersatz brother had made on the walls in his apartment. So and he was a great lover of films as well, including yeah. Alfred Hitchcock. Right? Films, yeah. I think he claimed that he was a producer on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which he did. was a show that was long running and very popular at that time. And so there's also the element of, you know, maybe this guy is somebody. Maybe I do want to take him seriously. And then when he goes from that to being a Rockefeller, and then when he's a Rockefeller in Cornish, New Hampshire, and purchasing a fire truck for the town of Cornish and doing all these things based on the monthly subsidy and draw that his wife was giving him from her salary. People don't want to question that. And then he did another idiosyncrasy up there. He, for some reason, he just decided that he wanted to disparage the sculptor St. Gaudens, who was from Cornish, wherever he could, however he could, his work was god-awful. And that was just another thing that he did to sort of nuance himself to add what he considered to be an air of authenticity, right down to always joking about how he always would order oysters Rockefeller when he went out to eat. <laughs> it is fairly artistic, his con, I think, was quite artistically done. But some of the things he said were absolutely outrageous. He was very personable, very engaging. I liked him as a client, you know, other, other than sort of uh, the cipher sense of, wait a second, he's, <laughs> he's affecting me. I always enjoyed talking with him. I just think he's a true example of act as he, he like lived as if, you know, they say act as if he lived as if. He, he did. Yeah. He absolutely did. Yeah, you know, he really did. I mean, he, he lived as if and he kind of made it happen. He made that his reality. Yeah, and, and some might, might say, okay, well, you know, he had this wonderful free ride existence. Why did he, why did he go and, and risk it all and blow it all by kidnapping his daughter? And, right. um, that's another side of him. He genuinely adored his daughter, wanted to be with her. That's real. Was real, remains real to this day. And that actually was a question. Now, do you think that that was about his daughter or was that about like vengeance against Sandra? I mean, do you think, or like winning or, I mean, because I mean, he had to know that he was going to get caught. I mean, it just seemed like such an erratic kind of not thought out thing to do. In my business, which is the criminal defense business, it's not unusual for there being criminal allegations that stem from frustration over sort of child custody rules, right. uh, restrictions on children. Why is a judge blocking my access to my own kids? That's not unusual at all. And I think that was a motivation here. Ultimately, uh, the defense that was raised at that trial was a defense of lack of criminal responsibility, or as we commonly refer to it, an insanity defense. My hunch is that the jury saw this for, for what it, it was, sort of a crime of passion based on a father who didn't want to abide by the rules anymore because he wanted to be with his daughter. I think that was a very tough case to defend. Um, the evidence was, was pretty difficult to overcome. He had very limited rights and visitation because he kind of let that go because of all the information that had come up in the divorce about his well, it's interesting his identity. As you know, I'm a private investigator, so it was interesting to me to hear about the private investigator, Rutnick, I think, who worked on that case. And he, as a PI, Basically, they started out looking for hidden assets. And then as he goes along, he says, this guy did not exist on paper. 
prior to his association with Sandra Boss. What is going on? There was nothing. As you dig deeper, I imagine as a private investigator, you are getting frustrated going, why can't I find out who this person is? And as it turns out, we know why he couldn't, because it was a totally fabricated identity. And yet, counter to that, what actually linked him back as a suspect to the murder was something incredibly dumb, if you think about it. He was in Connecticut with John Sohus's car and tried to re-register it out in California. And when he did that, that's what, well, wait a second, John Sohus is missing. Why is somebody in California, in Connecticut, trying to register his car now? So here's somebody who had no footprints, as you've, exact, as you've said, exactly. Mm -hmm. You're looking at this homicide, look at me, mistake. Well, I mean, one could argue, and it was argued, well, that's as much an indication of innocence as it's necessarily an invitation of target status. Because if he really was trying to cover up a murder, why wouldn't he have covered that up? And why, if it's uh, something related to his personality con, well, maybe that car really is sort of irrelevant altogether because, you know, he had that car and uh, uh, was given it when he was Chris Crow living in uh, the pool house in the Soho's property, and he had every reason to be in that car. So that's a very... And we probably want to talk to you a little bit about that because you were the main defense attorney on that. And my understanding of the vehicle, though, too, just to go back a little bit, is that I think he was trying to sell the truck and he had to have the title or something. He wanted like to that. sell it. He, he needed the title, but I think he also needed to somehow get a registration as well. And California, it was pretty easy. You pay $10 for something at the time. and So it's this little administrative hiccup that we all have in, in life that was a big trip up. Yeah. And the argument is very valid that if he had killed John Sohus driving back from California, that car would be somewhere at the bottom of Lake Michigan before he got to Connecticut and, That's right. and, and not garaged in a location traceable to him, and he'd want nothing to do with it. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's a kind of a, that car is a kind of a double-edged sword. I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So tell us a little bit about his association with like Didi Soas and take us to San Marino, California, where he was living in her guest house. Well, um, he had a knack for going to social events and charming older ladies. And uh, that was something that uh, witnesses also testified about. And uh, he seemed to be focusing his time on them and often was successful in impressing them. Ultimately, he uh, was uh, able to uh, ingratiate himself on uh, Dee Dee, who was somewhat housebound, appeared to have a drinking problem, which may or may not have affected her judgment. She had a pool house behind her house. Ultimately, he wound up living there. There appeared to be some pushback from her son, John, who wasn't really comfortable with this sort of uh, what he considered to be a freeloader who was just hanging out in, in pool house. And apparently there were other people that uh, testified that John had uh, complained about it and there was friction between himself and his mother. John was, a, was an interesting guy himself, who worked at the Jet Propulsion Lab in, uh, I think it was in Pasadena, and sort of loved science fiction and Dungeons and Dragons and uh, all sorts of things like that, as did his wife, Linda, who was an artist uh, who was often uh, drawing a sort of fantastical images of uh, unicorns and uh, starry things coming out of people's heads and all that kind of stuff. And she was into Dungeons and Dragons, too. And there was some anecdotal evidence that there might have been some friction in their marriage uh, as well. So there was this this uh, scenario of Dee Dee, who was increasingly um, relying on alcohol, becoming a, a little bit estranged from her son and this guy, odd, eccentric guy living in the backyard pool house. So Linda and John both go missing. 
and Linda's body is never found. Linda has not been seen since 1985. What happened was in 1994, the property was under new ownership and the owners uh, were digging in the backyard to either expand or put in a new pool. Mm -hmm. As they did, a backhoe struck a hard object, and that object was a portion of a skull that DNA later confirmed was John Sohus's. And the skull was in a bag, in a plastic bag, and that plastic bag had a discernible logo on it, and that discernible logo was from the bookstore of a small college in Wisconsin that Clark Rockefeller actually attended. And more uh, significant to the prosecution was the fact that that logo was only printed at a time when Clark actually attended that university. Ah, wow. so, incriminating. That was a tough piece of evidence. And then yeah. there were, there were um, some other uh, bones that were in uh, plastic bags as well, but certainly not the full skeleton. But it was John Sohus, and uh, we determined that there was no point in, in challenging that because John Sohos clearly was missing, and it clearly was his body, and uh, the defense was that uh, if it was, Clark didn't kill him. And Clark has maintained his innocence. He still maintains his innocence. Clark still maintains his innocence. He appealed uh, his first-degree murder conviction. Uh, that appeal was denied. He's serving his 25 to, I think it's actually 27 years to life sentence, and he maintains his innocence. And do you know how he's doing in prison? Do you think he's still conning in prison? I mean, that's his nature, wouldn't you? <laughs> I don't know. I do know that about a year after the trial, I received a cardboard box without a name of the sender, but it was from the prison's facility that he was then um, incarcerated at. And in it were a pair of glasses taped to the bottom of the box, but standing up as though the glasses were looking right at you. I can't recall if those were the glasses that we may have given him at his trial I think they were glasses that he had worn at one point. There was no note in it. That's bizarre. There, there was nothing there. And, and on the one hand, you don't know if it's one of these, I'm looking at you things or whether it's, wow. uh, hey, by the way, thanks for loaning me these glasses. I'm getting them back to you. I had no doubt they came from him, but no explanation. I think I had a couple of letters from him after his conviction as well. But you know, I assume that he's carrying on as best as he can do. Let me ask you, and I don't think this was part of your trial necessarily, but I know it was part of the divorce trial. They did hire an expert, Dr. Keith Ablo, to... The kidnapping trial, yeah. Can you speak to that at all? Or do you know sort of what makes Clark tick? I mean, why, why did he do all of this? They went with a diagnosis... Then it was a DSM, a narcissistic personality order with grandiose delusions. So they attempted to say that he lacked criminal responsibility, was unable to conform his behavior to the dictates of the law or differentiate between right and wrong, which is sort of a way of describing it in, in Massachusetts, such that he really was in another world and uh, he thought he was something that he wasn't and was so self-centered that he could not conform his behavior within the confines of custody orders and things like that. If uh, I think the inference was, if, if you think you're Clark Rockefeller, you think you're above all of this and it doesn't apply to you. And his substantial mental disorder was significant enough to have him truly believe this. That was the defense. I'll leave it at that. I did not believe that uh, for his California case, an insanity defense made sense or was appropriate. I felt this was a highly circumstantial case. And I thought the defense that I tried to develop didn't ultimately work, but there was as much evidence, if not more, to believe that 
Linda Sohus could have murdered her husband as the uh, state of California was actually going to present to the jury to try to establish that it was my client, Clark Rockefeller. Especially the University of Michigan bags. I think that would be a great frame. You know what I mean? You know what? I wish you were on my jury. Yeah. That's exactly where I was trying to track this case. Linda has access to Dee Dee's house. Linda has access to the pool house. Linda is there when he's there. Maybe he could hang on to plastic bags from six years before when he was at the University of uh, Wisconsin Greenpoint uh, or, or wherever it was. Uh, Maybe he did store items in his closet. What a perfect way if you think this guy who has a reputation for sort of chasing after old ladies and who may be trying to horn in on your husband's inheritance, maybe I frame him. Maybe I use stuff. I mean, again, we'll go back to the earlier comment. This guy was so smart and clever in terms of covering the tracks of how he became Clark Rockefeller, that would he really right. not know that I shouldn't put a skull in a bag with the distinctive logo of the place I went to school? I agree from six years ago. I think you're right. Linda was also a big woman. Uh, Linda, Linda was, was a big woman. I was also able to establish from a couple of her friends who were pretty odd that yeah, there was also friction and unhappiness in her marriage with John. And so then is it plausible that maybe Linda wanted John out of the way too? And and therefore she could maybe have a piece of whatever inheritance Dee Dee was going to leave behind. And then, of course, we have the postcards. And those postcards were big. And so for the listeners, what we had was we had two postcards from Paris, postdated after John's death and disappearance, that were from Linda Sohos to a really good friend of hers who testified at trial. And that friend uh, had given those postcards to investigators. And I had two handwriting experts testify that in their expert opinion, they can never say that it's an absolute match because you just don't have that level of certainty. But there was a high degree of probability that those postcards were were written by Linda Sohus based on the handwriting exemplars that they had of her known handwriting and what the writing that was on those postcards. And so the argument was, look, this is a circumstantial case. You got friction in the marriage. You got the uh, motive to potentially frame this drifter who came in and was horning in. You've got her almost taunting, saying, uh, hi, from Paris. I'm having a great life after her husband has gone missing and can't be found. Right. But on the other hand, you, you know, you also had, I mean, right, she didn't have a passport, I believe. And, and then there's no proof of any life uh, from her since then. Brad, on the other side, you do have investigators going and trying to find Linda and John Sohos. And Dee Dee tells them this crazy story that, that they're working on a secret mission, that they, they can't be found. And there's other things, too. Linda had 12 cats or something, some crazy number of cats. and Which you doesn't know, make her a uh, murderer. No. It, no. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> no the, the point is that she never would have left them unattended. Yeah. They were like her world, these cats, and she had boarded them. And Yeah, and, and, and there was testimony of bizarre things like Clark tried to sell a rug before he was leaving with uh, San Marino that had reddish brown stains on it and that a neighbor was convinced it was blood stains. And there was another incident where somebody was outside, I think, raking or something. And there was this god awful smell coming out of his chimney and, and they asked what it was, and he said he was burning some old rugs, and the inference was that maybe he could have been disposing of a body, and then there was something about someone seeing some odd industrial drums in his driveway. So there was all of that, but really what was difficult was literally on the eve of trial. The DA's office uh, in Los Angeles County came up with a postcard, potentially two postcards, from Clark 
that were allegedly uh, written and postmarked from Great Britain. And they were able, and, and they did enough, uh, the Sheriff's Department did enough uh, investigative work to establish that those actually were sent from Great Britain when Clark was in California. So they knew where I was coming with these Linda Soho postcards. Right. And, and they actually argued that he had the ability to either use somebody else or have the means to have postcards postmarked from another place all by his machinations of wherever he was. And uh, I think that they even went and argued that he potentially could have tricked Linda into writing these postcards in advance and uh, then held on to them and then had them actually mailed from Paris. There were some uphill climbs in that case. We've covered a lot, but I just wanted to ask if you had any interaction with his family because he really seemed like he had a loving family and that they, he really just kind of uh, abandoned them. And None whatsoever. None. No outreach, no, no anything. Nope. That's, that's kind of, that's so sad because it really seems like they really loved and cared about him and that he just obviously that, that didn't fit into his new persona. So and and without revealing anything, I'm I didn't have the sense that he really wanted them involved anyways. Yeah. Really fascinating thing about this case, and probably any true circumstantial case. For the listener, circumstantial means there's no actual eyewitness testimony to the corpus delicti, the event itself, the murder, and there were no nobody said that they saw this murder happen and, and uh, pointed to my client to say he did it. But I will tell you one quick funny thing. In the preliminary hearings in uh, um, San Marino, it actually was in another town uh, near San Marino, there was... Uh, sort of an older neighbor who was asked to identify Clark Rockefeller as somebody that they had interacted in some sort of little piece of circumstantial chain that uh, DA's office wanted to use to uh, establish guilt. And the uh, witness looked all around the courtroom and then pointed to the very back of the courtroom and said, he's over there. And we all look. And the witness is identifying the cameraman. <laughs> <laughs> the judge said, who? Oh, describe what he's wearing. And uh, he's wearing a plaid shirt, which the cameraman, was, the TV cameraman was wearing. The witness was clearly identifying the cameraman. And after the lunch break, the cameraman came back wearing a different shirt. <laughs> so, oh, that's great. But anyways, the, the, the thing about this as a circumstantial case was it really was one of those cases where every credible argument that the prosecution tried to make, there was a credible counter argument to be made by the defense. And that's why the gist of everything, because their whole thing was everything that he did after 1985, right through becoming who he claimed to be and ultimately being Chip Smith when he was picked up or whatever name name it was uh, in Baltimore. Everything was to cover over his footprints that would lead him back to the murder of John Sohas. And the counter to that, which to me to this day makes sense, is no, everything was to protect the con that made people believing that he was Clark Rockefeller and was allowing him to live the life of Riley. And I think truly at the end of the day, I think that when you have such a close call, sometimes juries, uh, particularly community juries, just want to blame the grifter, want to blame the stranger amongst them. Somebody had to answer for the murder of John Sohas. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating case, I have to say. And just to, to double back on what you had said about him being allowed to talk to the press kind of thing. I imagine, and I wasn't there, but I could see, given his personality, that he would want to do that in some ways. It seems like he'd want to make a statement. He'd want to present himself in front of the press and, and say his piece in many ways. You know? Absolutely. And, and given your, your Ivy League mantle and letterhead here, one little Ivy League moment was um, I had a really, really testy courtroom exchange with a former 
reporter who may have been once for the LA Times, and she was really formidable. And we were just going back and forth at it in the courtroom. And I could not shake her. And she probably beat me at the end of that exchange. Either the next day or a couple of days later, I got an email from a Harvard dorm mate who said, you know, that woman who was beating you up in the quorum, that's my ex-sister-in-law. So it's a little... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There was uh, a former classmate and dorm mate of mine in Kirkland House uh, out in California watching this on TV and watching watching me exchanging a very aggressive cross-examination with her ex-sister-in-law. Wow. Wow. Funny. Amazing. I have to say I'm inspired by Clark. I think I'm going to change my name to Blanca Von Guinness. What do you think, Laura? What do you think of uh... <laughs> We're trying I'm to think of sure fancy. Conv- I'm not sure how convincing it is. I can see advantages to that. I think it's I like... think you sound like a hot, like a like an expensive madam. <laughs> not like not like a, a blue blood. Okay. I'll have to think of something. <laughs> but maybe that's what you're going for. I, no judgment. No judgment. This um, has been such an, a remarkable honor to have you on and to talk about this. And, and it's just really a fascinating Absolutely. Case. To just get an inside, someone who was there yes. and someone, it, it's fascinating. Thank you, you so know? much for taking the time out of your day. It, it's my pleasure, as I said to one of you before you ever want to do this again, we can talk about the strange case of Sheila Labar. And uh, you should look that one up, the double homicides in New Hampshire. Okay, Sheila oh, Labar. Okay, okay well, I'm on it. <laughs> yes. We'll come bugging you again. Oh, don't, yeah. You just told the wrong people. <laughs> yeah. to, uh... Fascinating case. Okay, and you're an Ivy Leaguer, so we're going to be really bugging you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brad. Brad, thank you very, very much. Thank you both very much. I've appreciated this. Murder, murder, murder.